Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Sadie. She can't hear me. Good morning. <laughs> All right, welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin by praying now. Father, we thank you for all your good gifts. We thank you that you grace us out because you, you can freely give to us, not because of anything that we did or even who we are, except that we're in, son, in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you also for your word and most importantly, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts. And and we thank you, Father, for each person that's here with us today. We would ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would guard and direct everything that will be going on today, um, that we would understand the things in your word that you have provided for us today, and that we may leave ready to apply what we've learned. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, a couple of announcements. We are continuing to ask that you pray for the Christians in India, especially our friends there. Um, COVID-19 continues to take a terrible toll on that nation and particularly on the Christians who are at the lowest rung of society in that country. Um, We in particular have a relationship with Pastor Adams and uh, his Family, we ask for prayers, his congregation, his fellow preachers, widows, orphans, and lepers. We're doing what we can to help them out at this time. Obviously, they need everything that that can be possibly provided to them. And we would just ask that the Lord would provide the miracles that he needs to provide in order to get them through this and get them the food and employment that they need to have restored. All right, this month our missionary organization is Mission Aviation Fellowship. Talked about that a lot. Their website is www.maf.org. There are a lot of stories on that website about different individuals and families and the work that they're doing in the different countries that they fly into. So I encourage you, as always, to visit their website. All right, our passage this morning is from the Gospel of John. It's no surprise, I guess, by now, but it's chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, if you could turn to that at this time. John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea, and he went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water, springing up 
to eternal life. Now here in chapter 4, in this, the first 26 verses, we have a record of an extended conversation that Jesus had with this Samaritan woman. By the way, it's the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the four Gospels. Yeah, Samaritan woman. In chapter 3, remember, Jesus had had an extended discussion with somebody else by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a wise, learned man, a leader of the Jews. This woman could not have been any more different than she was from Nicodemus. He was a man, she was a woman. He was Jewish, she was a Samaritan. He was learned, she was ignorant. He was respected by his community. She was not respected by hers. Couldn't be more different. That's why it's pretty interesting that the longest conversation that Jesus has with anybody is with her. And the first time, as we'll see next week, that he reveals directly to somebody, says it himself, that he's the Messiah, is to her. So that tells you a lot about the ministry of Jesus and what's happening. That's something that had been pretty much reserved or focused at least on the nation of Israel until now in terms of how God was dealing with things, how history was moving. Now with the the appearance of Jesus Christ, that's totally blown apart. And now instead it's open to all. Rich, poor, Samaritan, Jew, everybody. So even though, though, even though the Samaritan woman could not have been more different. In other words, these two were totally different. And yet, both conversations really boil down to one subject. And that subject is, who is Jesus? Now, by now, you should, have, should be used to that question. Because remember, I, the, the whole gospel of John is written to answer this question. Who is Jesus? And it's fascinating that as the reader, we get the answer at the beginning and the end. We see at the beginning who he is. He's the word. He was with God. He was God, right? In the very first verse, we find out that he's God himself. We find out that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That this this word, this God, became a flesh. And that's Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. And then at the end, of course, we have the answer to it that was the fo- is the focus of the gospel. That Jesus is the Christ. That you may believe that Jesus is. Who is Jesus? The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and all that that entails. And that by believing, you might have life. And so, so you can see this gospel in terms of an unfolding series of encounters. Where the, where the root subject is always the same. Who is Jesus? But we see it in different ways. We see it in different audiences. We see that Jesus approaches Nicodemus a certain way about trying to answer that question, who he is. A different way with the Samaritan woman. A different way with large crowds. A different way. So there's lots of different ways in which Jesus gets the information across. But it's basically the same information he's trying to get across. Right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. And so in that respect, this gospel is pretty straightforward. Yet we all need to be reminded of these things many, many times. Not only for ourselves, but perhaps particularly for others. So that we may become experts in the way that Jesus was an expert at communicating this truth, these facts about who Jesus is. So again, we'll see today the manner in which Jesus brings this woman to understand his identity, who he is, is completely different from how he handled things with Nicodemus. We'll see more of that. Okay, let's backtrack to the beginning. John chapter 4, verse 1, as we get into the specifics of what is said and the meaning of it this morning. John chapter 4, verse 1. These first six verses are to get our bearings. It sets the stage. Where is he? Who's he with? Why was he there? What was his situation? All to get your bearings. Where had he been and where was he going? John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making 
and baptizing more disciples than John. Now remember, we had seen John already. In fact, you could make a pretty good argument that it's actually John who's the center of chapter, chapters 1, um, 19 through much of chapter 3. There's certainly a lot more is said about John even than Jesus. But we saw, remember we saw at the end that now John says, okay, now I'm moving down, I'm stepping aside, and now Jesus will come in and he'll, he should get all the glory, he should get all the focus. But as we left chapter 3, it was still the case that John was baptizing a lot of people. And then Jesus started a similar ministry of baptism as well. It's only here at the beginning of chapter 4 that we see now Jesus' ministry has taken off. Uh, and, what, and we'll see here that the Pharisees quickly noticed this, took note of it. You wonder what they were thinking. They, they might be, this is a little bit speculative, but they might be thinking, wow, we were really nervous about this John. This Jesus is somebody else we have to deal with. Maybe we can split apart the two movements so it's like a lot less powerful. They, there's some evidence here that that was the case. So again, verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we get our bearings now. We know that Jesus was, has left Judea, where he, had that, where, he was, where he had his own baptism ministry, where he had first in Jerusalem revealed signs to the public, where he had, um, had the, the discussion with Nicodemus and so forth. Now he's leaving Judea. By the way, John is the only gospel writer that tells us about Jesus' ministry early on in Judea. Their other three Gospels basically start in, in, in Galilee, start in, um, in, the, in the north. Here's a map, by the way, just so we can just literally get our geographic bearings now. Okay, so this is Judea. Remember, he had been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and then he moved out into the, the Judean countryside. And then he realized that his baptism ministry was getting larger than John. And he knew, we'll see in a second, why it was that he had to leave. And now he had to get here. This was his destination. But in order to do that, he had to go through Samaria. We'll see in a minute that there was another route. But he chose the most direct one. And it's interesting because there's that city of Sychar, which will be the focus. This is where he is. This is where the Samaritan woman will come to the well. And their conversation will occur right there. Okay, so again... Jesus was traveling from Judea, headed for Galilee. He left Judea. Why? Because the Pharisees were getting too interested in him. Too interested in him. And it wasn't his time yet. He said that many in the early part of the Gospel of John, he would say several times, my time has not arrived. My hour has not yet come. We saw that he said that to his mother when, when, when she said, please help out this, this marriage couple because they've run out of wine. He said, woman, this is not my time yet. He would say it several more times. And what the point is, is that he, it was not time for him to engage and have conflict that he would have later in a big, big way with the Pharisees. And so he moved on. All right. Now, again, we saw his route took him through Samaria. It was the most direct route. By the way, it was the one that the Galilean, Galilean, Jews from Galilee, took the direct route from Judea. Now, they came down several times a year, right, to Jerusalem, all right, for the different holidays, different um, feasts, and they would head back home. And they would always take this most direct route through Samaria and then up on into the Galilee. So, so, but on the other hand, there were some Jews, all right, the scrupulous ones, notably the Pharisees, who wouldn't even step foot in Samaria. They chose an alternative route so they could avoid Samaria entirely because they really thought that even if they, even if they had a conversation with somebody, they would be defiled. This was how extreme the, the, the bitterness and the hatred and the 
looking down upon the Samaritans, that the, that the most, actually the upper class, the most scrupulous would have done to get to avoid that. But you know, it's interesting. Jesus had a divine appointment also. He, had a, he was going to keep an appointment with this woman. He knew that before he left Judea. And so the fact that it's the most direct route is, it has no bearing on the fact that he also went and stopped at that city in that well because he knew that woman would come. And he realized that part of his calling, his mission, was to preach the gospel to her. And, and he also understood that he was in Samaria so that he could have his ministry there as well so that all would hear that Jesus, the Messiah, had come. He came to Sychar. That was her hometown. He had walked, by the way, at least 15 miles that morning. If you, it's, it's, that's a long... That, I don't know about you, but if I had walked 15 miles in a morning, I think I'd be tired too. I would be thirsty even more so. That's right. So Jesus was human. The Word became flesh. He's human. We see his humanity here on display that he was tired, that he was thirsty, that he had to sit down. That spirits don't have those issues. They don't, they don't get thirsty. They don't get tired. Right? Humans do. So another more evidence that he's human as well as God. So then he heads to a well-known spot, and it's just outside of this city of Sychar. It was a well, a well of water, deep water. It was Jacob's well. By the way, even today, they, they know the, exactly where Jacob's well was. If you go to, to Israel, it's, it's one of those tourist attractions, although it's dangerous to go there now, especially now. By the way, please pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They really need prayer right now. One could argue that the Palestinians need it more, but that's just an issue, that's an issue of the militaries. But our focus is on praying for Jerusalem and for the Jewish people. This is a great, important time to do that. All right, so I want to show you a little bit about the, this well and this ground, this land in particular, that Jacob had bought and given to his son Joseph. Please turn to Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32. Joshua 24, 32. Now, Joshua, of course, comes on after Moses has passed on, after he's died. And, and, and Joshua was a, was a younger leader that was, he was sent into the promised land and as, as, as a spy to give information back about what was happening in the land. There were, there were, I believe, 12 that went. He and Caleb, his buddy, were the only two that gave a positive report. All right, so it turns out that in that generation, those were the only two that made it into the promised land, along with the next generation, the young people. Okay, so that's the thing. We, so we already have had, in, history, in the history of the Jewish people of Israel, we already had them coming out of Egypt. We had them, now, now jo- Joseph was the one that brought, essentially brought them into Egypt. But 400 years passed, and the pharaohs forgot all about Joseph, and they were very cruel taskmasters, and then the Lord delivered his people, and then he brought them into the wilderness, and then they, because they were disobedient and lacked faith, they just did circles around that place for almost 40 years, and then Moses can see it from the mountain, and he knows he can't go because he had his own problems, and so then it's up to Joshua to lead the people into the promised land, and he does so, and he has many military victories because he relies on the Lord. You know the story of Joshua and Jericho, for example. Well, there are several such stories. This is at the very end of this uh, Bible book of Joshua. So now we see at the end, we see Joseph come back on the scene. Of course, he's dead. He's been dead and buried for over 400 years. And as a matter of fact, when when he died, he gave instructions. Now, Now, he's in Egypt. He gave instructions. He says, listen, I want my bones to be buried in the promised land. Because he knew not only that that was promised to the Jews, but they would receive it, and one day they would receive it and stay there forever. Okay, so that's what he wanted. Well, here at the end of the book of Joshua, he gets his, his wish. Verse 32, Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel had brought up from Egypt at Shechem. In the piece of ground which Jacob had bought, from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, 
And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So this land that Jacob purchased, he gave to Joseph. It became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. Now I want you to see another map. All right. This was the route that Jesus took to go from Judea back to Galilee. Right there. Now these, these are two mountains. This is Mount Gerizim. And this is Mount Ebal. Uh, Ebal. We'll see those mountains in a minute. But I want you to see here that this is Shechem, which is referenced here in this passage in Joshua. Here is Joseph's tomb. This is where they buried his bones. Here's Jacob's well. And so what's being described here in Joshua is exactly the same location that Jesus is passing by when he, when he arrives at what we think was Sychar, okay, which is this, this town right here, which is, of course, a, was, we know from the Gospel of John, a way station, a place where you could rest. And so, remember now, that he's at, he's at the well, and as we're going to see, his disciples had gone into this city. So that gives you the bearing on the geography. Anyway, so, so Sychar, on the way to Galilee, it, by the way, it rested on the slope of a hill across from, right here, across from Mount Gerizim, in view of this mountain. And that's important, too. Their conversation, the Samaritan woman will, will talk about this mountain. And she'll talk about it as if they were right there because they were right there. They could, both of them could look. In fact, this spot, you could argue, was, was chosen by the Lord so that it was right in the, in the foothills of this mountain. Okay. Now, it turns out that the Samaritans worshipped on this mountain. The map's not there anymore. Yes, it is. They worshipped on this mountain. We're going to see why, okay, in just a moment. Okay, now we know that the Jews didn't worship in Mount Gerizim. They worshipped down here, right about here, if you can see the blue, um, in, uh, in Jerusalem, of course. All right. so, so that's the scene, all right, in both in the big picture and in the little picture. And now he's walked 15 miles, he's tired, and now, again, the Samaritans ended up worshiping at this Mount Gerizim. Now you might say, why? Why would they have done that? Well, well we're going to look at the fact that who the Samaritans were in a moment. But I'll, I'll give you a little uh, preview of things. The Samaritans were formed when, essentially, when, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. It took the large majority of the Israelites with them. And they populated them in the foreign lands that were part of the Assyrian Empire at the time. But they didn't just do that. They also wanted to make sure that it would not be an attractive place for anybody to come back to, the northern kingdom land. And the way they accomplished that was they took, they took people from five different locations between the northern kingdom and Assyria, pagans, Gentiles with their own religion, and they brought them in and they colonized the location, in the land of the northern kingdom, with these pagans and Gentiles. There were a few Israelites who remained, just a few. By the way, they tended to be the, the old, the sick, the very young at the time. And so there were a few. Well, of course, they were overwhelmed by these new people that were coming in and colonizing. I mean, one could talk about, for example, uh, in our country when the, when the British and the French came and they colonized so much of eastern uh, the Eastern Continent, and then you had these Native Americans that were there, and they were pretty much overwhelmed. They either intermarried or they perished, most of them, and the same thing was true about the Israelites. All right, so let's read now about, a little bit about why it could be that this mountain in particular was what the Samaritans ended up worshiping upon. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 11. Deuteronomy now, Deuteronomy chapter 27 Verse 11. Give you a moment to turn there. And while you are, I want to tell you something else about the Samaritans. That is that they only accepted the first five books of the the Old Testament. That was it. That was their complete Bible. Okay, we're going to Deuteronomy 27, verse 11. But I also want to mention is to set this up that the Samaritans had a Bible, in quotes, that was just the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
It's what, what was known by the Jews as the law, the Torah. But, they, but the Samaritans didn't recognize any of the other books in what we today call the Old Testament. There's 39 books. They recognized five. Not only that, but they corrupted the five that they had. They changed it. And so, in some respects, it's kind of similar to what, what went on with the Muslims. When they started their movement, they took some of the scriptures and information, both, by the way, in their case, from the Old and New Testament, and they corrupted it. They changed it. They, 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 put, they, they, they took Yahweh out, and they put Allah in. They made Jesus into just a man, and so forth. Okay? They changed all the stories. You know, um, rather than Isaac being the line, they made Esau the line. So in a sort of similar way, that's what the Samaritans did as well. And one of the reasons they did that was so that what, what they, the way they were worshiping and where they were worshiping would come to the forefront. Now, they didn't have to change Deuteronomy chapter 27, however. This became the springboard for what they decided to do. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 11. Moses also charged the people. Who are the people here? It's the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 27, 11. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount... There it is. Gerizim. Here's our map again. So Moses is saying, listen, when you cross the Jordan, okay, we're going to be dealing with these two mountains, guys. Okay? He says, now, here's what we're going to do. Remember, now, Moses is, in Deuteronomy, he's talking about blessings and curses, right? That's the, that's the framework of the law, by the way. If you obey, blessing. If you don't obey, curse. And to get that point across in a very graphic way, he's going to have them here at these two mountains. He's going to put some people here and some people here. He's going to say, this is the mountain of the curse, this is the mountain of the blessing in a very dramatic way, by actually having men of the 12 tribes split up into, on top of those two mountains to make that point. Notice, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 11. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, for the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. Now, it's interesting because for the most part, actually entirely, the ones that would make up the southern kingdom. And that, now, again, let me give you a little more history. David had the whole kingdom, north and south. Solomon had the whole kingdom, north and south. After Solomon, there was a split and the north became one kingdom, the northern kingdom. And the south became another kingdom, Judah. And they had some tribes in the south, but most of the tribes in the north. And it's interesting in this passage that the tribes of the south are standing on Mount Gerizim. Two of them anyway, Judah and Benjamin. Okay, And then the rest, which were all eventually going to be tribes in the north, were on this other mountain, all right, Mount Ebal. So again, same geographic location. Okay. The Samaritan Bible, as I've already mentioned, was a corrupt version of the twelve of the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't recognize any other scriptures now. What does that mean? They didn't accept any prophets. No prophets. Because there aren't any prophets in the first five books of the Bible besides Moses. And then one he would promise in the future. But they didn't recognize Isaiah or Ezekiel or any other prophets that are in the Jewish Bible. They didn't even except the fact that the Lord had his temple built in Jerusalem. Because that, would, that happened in First and Second Samuel, in the, in the days of David and Solomon. Samaritans didn't recognize that as part of their Bible either. So they're stuck, as it were, in the first five books of the Bible. And so they only looked at Mount Gerizim, is the place, Gerizim, to bless the people to worship on. By the way, they would, at one point, after, the, after what I described about the Assyrians, and even after the southern kingdom had been taken into exile and come back, and they were the, the Samaritans, they wanted no part of the Samaritans when they came back. And so finally, the Samaritans said, we're going to build our own rival temple. 
They, 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 they couldn't participate in building the temple of Zerubbabel, which was the temple in, in Jerusalem that ultimately was the place where, after the exile, the, the new temple was erected. And instead, the Samaritans said, you know what, we're going to build our own temple. We're going to have our own worship. We're going to do everything apart from the Jews in the south. And they did. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Okay. Now, I want, let's go back to John, chapter 4, verse 7 now. With that background, that background. John 4, 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city, Sychar, to buy food. He's at the well now. He's seated. His disciples had gone. He was alone. Woman comes to the well to draw water. She's alone. It's the middle of the day, the sixth hour in the reckoning of the Jews was noontime, because they started their, their, their daytime at 6 a.m. That was their, the first hour was 6 to 7. So it's hot, it's dry, he's sitting there, woman comes along. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, right here, Jesus is breaking two taboos in asking the Samaritan woman for a drink. First of all, he was speaking to an unaccompanied woman. That was the taboo at the time. You just didn't do that, all right, for a lot of reasons, by the way, that, that tradition continues in certain parts of the church. Where there's the uh, Billy Graham rule. Have you ever heard about the Billy Graham rule? The rule that no, no preacher should ever be alone with a woman. Yeah. Not a bad idea, but a little extreme, right? I don't know how you would counsel a widow if you weren't able to be with her. And she might very well be alone. Anyway, putting that aside for a minute. Forever, actually. Um, he was speaking to an unaccompanied woman in that time. Big taboo. If you want to have some understanding of that, we can look to the Muslims today, and they have that same practice. You know, the women are all clothed from head to toe, and they can't go outside without a member of the male member of the family and so forth. Well, that's sort of, that's sort of this, the mentality that was in place in the first century in both Judea and in Samaria. So that was a taboo, speaking to a woman who was alone, and he was alone, all right? Not supposed to be done. But second... He was asking a Samaritan for a drink. You see, when, you, when he's talking to a Samaritan woman, he's breaking two taboos, the, the woman part and the Samaritan part. Now, Jews at that time thought that even sharing the same drinking vessel with a Samaritan made them unclean, made them impure. Even more so if the Samaritan was a woman, for reasons I don't really want to get into right now. Okay, so the, the worst of the worst was a Samaritan woman. You wanted, to, as a Jew, especially a scrupulous one, you wanted to stay as far away as possible. You certainly didn't want to share their utensils or their cups and so forth. Now, this hostility between Jew and Samaritan began hundreds of years earlier, back when Solomon's kingdom was torn in two. It became a a, a, a Hatfields versus McCoy kind of situation. Okay, there was a feud. Both sides were equally um, to blame, so to speak. Now, the hostility grew a lot worse after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. I've been over this ground, but I'm going to give it to you again. They removed most of the Israelites out of their land in the northern part of Israel. They repopulated it with Gentiles from foreign nations. They brought their false gods with them. And then the few Israelites that remained in the land intermarried with the Gentiles. Now that was on purpose. 
not to get too gruesome, but for a moment, most armies, when they conquer a land, this is even true in the 20th century, by the way, marry or rape the women of that nation. You want to know why? To remove the ethnic purity of that nation. What better way to wipe out a nation than to remove it from terms of the people themselves? For example, maybe like when the Chinese were invaded by the Japanese in World War II. That happened on a huge scale. Why? Because the Japanese said, you know what, you can't be a China if there's no Chinese. If they're all Chinese-Japanese, there's not, they're not, they're not that pure race, so to speak, anymore. Same thing here. So the Israelites who were in the land intermarried with the Gentiles. Now that was a problem for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is remember, they, these pagans, they brought their pagan gods with them. Well, well, when you marry somebody, you've got to deal with it. If you're two different religions, you've got to deal with that. And sometimes the way in which it's dealt with is not good, especially if you believe in the one God, right? I was seeing a special last night on the, the train, to bear with me, trains in Switzerland. You might say, what does this have to do? Let me see if I can get you there. But um, the reason I'm mentioning is that there was a shrine that the, uh, the person narrating went to, a building on the, on the second floor, it was all Christian. On the first floor, it was all Buddhist in the same building. And of course, he was, they thought that was the greatest idea. You know, this is great. They're all getting together. Well, as Christians and as Jews, we know that that's not great. It's the opposite. You know, purity. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have false gods before me. So this is a big problem that they were intermarrying and they were worshiping the false gods alongside Yahweh. That's interesting because it was along with Yahweh. You see, they were hedging their bets, so to speak. or They were, they were trying to keep peace in the family. I know of mixed Jewish Christian couples that they bring up their children, both religions. They celebrate both holidays. All right, that's kind of what was going on in the northern kingdom. Totally against the first commandment, of course. All right, let's continue. John chapter 4, verse 10. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, number one, gift of God, and number two, who it is who says to you, give me a drink. That's where we see that the subject, who is Jesus, is right back in the center. Right? He says, if you knew the gift of God, that's one thing. And who it is who says to you, give me a drink. Who is Jesus? She's about to find out. But she didn't know that when they started the conversation. Have you ever had that? Do you want to witness somebody? And you start with Jesus and they don't know who he is. Right? That's, that's often the case. So you've got to lead them along. You've got to lead them on. You know, if, you're, if you're like Jesus and you're understanding that somebody is just ignorant, they never heard of them, they have their own false religion, you're not going to pound them over the head. You're going to try to draw them closer, pique their curiosity, give them an understanding of why they need Jesus and so forth. That's exactly what the Lord's going to do with this Samaritan woman. Jesus answered and said, to her. If you knew the gift of God, we're going to look at what that gift was in a couple of minutes. If you knew the gift of God that God is offering to you now, and if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given, would have given you living water. Verse 11, she misunderstands. Just like Nicodemus misunderstood when Jesus told him you had to be born again, the same thing here. He would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now, what's the issue here? Was Jesus talking about water in a deep well? Absolutely not. Remember, he's leading her into an understanding of the spiritual things, but she's not going there yet. She's still focused on the physical. Not unusual. Not unusual. I mean, the same thing happens again later in the Gospels when Jesus has, has bread that he multiplies and fish. 
And he's illustrating who he is. But all they cared about was, that, was a meal. It happened again and again and again. That, they, that the people were focused on the natural, the physical. And he was trying to get them to look up and see the spiritual. And very often they would have nothing to do with that. Again, verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Interestingly, what's the answer to that question, by the way? Yes, you are greater than our father Jacob. But she didn't know that yet. Okay, She's asking the right question, but she has the wrong answer still. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the water in Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Now, you've got to believe that that got her attention. Right? There's, I mean, there's water you can give me, and once I drink it, I'll never be thirsty again? Wheels are spinning. But by the way, she's still not understanding that this is a spiritual fact, okay? That the greatest need that she had wasn't her body being thirsty, but her innermost being being thirsty. She didn't understand that yet. She's still focused on H2O, so to speak. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. And then, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Natural water, H2O, preserves human life, natural life, physical life, okay? The water that Jesus has to offer has to do with spiritual life, okay? Satisfying that need, that, that thirst that every human being has. In chapter 3 now, going back to Nicodemus, Again, Nicodemus thought that Jesus was talking about physical birth, remember? He says, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Nicodemus says to him, do you mean that I have to go back in my mother's womb and be born again? And of course, Jesus is shaking his head. By the way, he had far less patience with Nicodemus than he's going to have with this Samaritan woman. And that makes a lot of sense. So he didn't understand anything, and he should have, about what spiritual birth was. Now, of course, with Nicodemus, he was a proud, learned, remember, Jewish aristocrat. Jesus was really direct, snappy almost in his reply. Right? He says it again, unless you're born of of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he's finally going to say, you, being a teacher of Israel, you don't understand these things. You see, Nicodemus had a lot of advantages to get to the point where he could understand the spiritual things. He was, he was learned. He was Jewish. He was an aristocrat. But this lowly, ignorant, Samaritan woman had none of those advantages. So he is very gentle and patient with her. See, in, this, in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman thinks that Jesus is talking about physical water. Okay, we've seen that several times already. But just like Nicodemus didn't understand about spiritual birth, she didn't understand what spiritual water was either. But Jesus is going to be a lot more patient with her than he was with Nicodemus because she was literally ignorant. Ignorant isn't an insult, by the way. A lot of times it's used as an, as an insult. You know what ignorant is? You don't know something yet. When I was in, when I was in the, uh, fifth grade and I went in and the teacher started teaching me certain mathematics, I was ignorant didn't mean I was stupid or anything like that. It wasn't a negative. It was just, I don't know it yet. That was the woman. She didn't know. Think about it. She didn't know any better. She was brought up in a, in a religion that had only the five books of the Old Testament. They worshipped on the wrong mountain. They had, they had several gods that they were worshipping to. So she, she was lowly, unlike Nicodemus, who was well-respected. So again, Jesus is going to be very patient with her. Now, talking about gifts of God, you know, the woman understood that the water in Jacob's well was a gift from God, and, and it certainly was. You know, you're, you're in a dry, arid spot, okay? And if you don't have water, you're going to perish. 
And so the Lord provided for his people. This, this, it was a great well. By the way, the well still works today. Uh, it had refreshing water. Okay? So, and she understood, and she was right, that this was a gift from God. Water, though, in Jacob's well, only quenched the thirst that her body had. You see, she didn't know the far greater gift. If you knew the gift of God in verse 10, there was a far greater gift than water. It's H2O. It was eternal life. The water in Jacob's well could, could preserve physical life, but the water that Jesus has to give is a far greater gift, eternal life. She didn't understand that yet. She didn't know that this was a far greater gift. Now, at this point, all she saw when she looked at Jesus was a thirsty traveler, a Jewish man, who had just surprised her, actually, by asking her for a drink. She knew he was somewhat different, but she had no idea who he really was. In fact, she had no inkling of who he really was. Well, who is he really? He is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. But she didn't know any of that. She's going to learn some of it. She's going to learn that he is the Christ. All right? And then later on, the Samaritans that are going to come down based on her word are going to realize that he's also the savior of the world. But at this point, she doesn't know any of this about him. So now Jesus is now setting out to reveal his identity to her. And he doesn't hit her over the head. Right? He's, don't you know that I am the Christ, the son of God? You know, that's what we do sometimes when we're witnessing. You know, we're very, we're very impatient, right? We'll just say to them, come on, you don't know this? You don't understand what I'm saying? You know, and we get impatient and we, not Jesus. He took his time. He basically understood where she was beginning from, all right? And then how to get her in a way that she could understand and she could accept to see who he is. All right. So that's what he's beginning to do now. But, but before he could even say who he is, there were some things he had to deal with. The first one was that he needs to raise her sights from physical matters to spiritual matters. He put it in a different way. He put it a harsh way to Nicodemus, right? He says, if you don't believe the earthly things, how are you going to believe the heavenly things? Well, the same issue is here with the woman, but he's far more gentle. He needs to raise her sights. I'm not talking about physical water. I'm talking about eternal life. I'm not just a Jewish traveler, right? I am the Messiah, okay? Those are spiritual matters. But there's some other, there's a second thing that he needs to raise to her attention, and that is she needs to be aware. He needs to make her aware of her deepest need. Her deepest need was not the water in Jacob's well. Her deepest need was spiritual, a spiritual need. And it was a need. And he's going to talk about something in her life that is going to bring home the point that ultimately her need is spiritual. Once he has that, once he said, I'm talking about spiritual things, your need is spiritual, and she accepts that, then he can start to talk about who he is. He's the gift. He's the one who brings the water of eternal life. But how he accomplishes these things is remarkable. And we're going to take a look at some of this this morning. All right, back to John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. At this point, her mind is on one thing, and that's the water in Jacob's well. She's very protective of that. She says, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and used it himself and his horse and his cattle? Not his horse. His children and his cattle. So, but that's all he knew. Now, see, he could have chastised her for that, right? That's what we might do. Ah, you're always thinking just at the physical. You know, how about the spiritual? You have no idea what the spiritual. What's wrong with you? You know, he didn't do any of those things. He said, she's focused on this water in the well. That's where I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin talking about water. And that's what he did. Jesus said, I, you, he said, listen, you need, you think that you only have to satisfy the need of the body for physical water on a hot day. 
And he said, but you need to learn two things. There they are, right? If you knew the gift of God, there's two things. Notice that she didn't know. And he, he, she, he needs to teach her these things. That there's a gift of God that he's here to offer. And that I am somebody that you should get to know. Okay? Because I'm the one who can give you the well of water that leads to eternal life. So again, there's two things. There's the gift that God is offering her, and that gift is vastly greater than the water in Jacob's well. Ultimately, that gift is salvation and eternal life. So she says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew that there was, there was a heaven and eternal life and that the way to, is through my, my, me and my sacrifice for you, if you just knew that, if you just understood what eternal life really means, Okay, that's the first thing, if you knew the gift of God. What's the second thing? Who it is who says to you, give me a drink, a gift and a man. These are the two things she didn't understand yet. I didn't understand the real gift, didn't understand who this man really was. He's infinitely greater than she thought. At this point, remember, who does she think he is? A Jewish man, tired traveler, okay? But who is he really? The Messiah, Okay, infinitely greater than she thought at the current time. Now, with Nicodemus, as we've already mentioned, Jesus hit him over the head with the facts. After all, he was a professional scholar. He really ought to have known better. Remember, we went back to Ezekiel and made it crystal clear there that he should have known what it meant to be born of water in the spirit. He should have known. He was not ignorant, or he shouldn't have been. But the woman had none of these advantages, so he takes a far different approach with her. He draws her into the truth, gently open her eyes, one step at a time. We would do well to take our cue from Jesus and his approach to people. And we need to recognize that we might have a different approach to the truth of the gospel with somebody who's a Bible expert than somebody who's never even read the Bible. When I say expert, I don't mean that they're Christians either. I just mean that they know a lot about the Bible. I mean, there's men who write commentaries, and they're not Christians, but they know a lot about the Bible. All right? That's what he's talking about. There are, there are other Christian organizations and religions that know who Jesus is. They just don't believe he's God, or they just don't believe he's the Savior, or that his blood is the one perfect sacrifice for our sins. That would be more like the Pharisee Nicodemus. This woman knew nothing. She worshipped many gods, like today we would have a Hindu, for example, um, or a Muslim, right? They have no concept, really, of who Jesus is. So there's different approaches. With her, he gently opens her eyes to the truth. The other thing about her was she was a despised woman. She was put down, okay? So you deal differently with a woman like that than with a proud, aristocratic man, okay? Okay. She had no advantages like Nicodemus, took a really different approach, gentle, opening her eyes one step at a time. He begins by telling her what? He can give her living water. He can give her living water. Again, he starts by talking about what was on her mind, which was water. He's going to use that as a springboard to what he wants her to understand. Okay. Now, of course, she's not catching on right away that he's offering something spiritual. You see, that phrase living water could mean at the the physical level, and they used it this way, moving water, running water, water in a stream or river perhaps, as opposed to standing water, which would be in a well or even in a lake, right? So that that living water meant that in a sense it was alive because it was moving. That's, That's how she took it anyway. And it just so happens that the well of Jacob is a deep well, and it eventually leads to an underground stream. So she had some basis for thinking, oh, he's talking about that kind of water, that water that's in the stream, okay? But then she, when she thought about that, she's like, wait, how's he going to get that water? You know, he, you would have needed at least 100 feet of rope, because it was far down where the, where the stream was, and a sturdy bucket to reach that water. He had nothing. He was standing there. Verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw from with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. 
she still thinks that he is talking about H2O. But now she's beginning, notice when she says, you are not greater, are you? Now she's starting to wonder. Maybe there's a little more to this man than at first I understood. Maybe there is something greater about him. And of course, the next thing that he says is going to really encourage her to think that way. Notice the answer that he gives to her. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, now again, he's standing by the well of Jacob. He's looking up at Mount Gerizim. He's pointing to the water in the well. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. See, every Sunday when I come to the pulpit, I have this, which is, which is graciously given to me by Jack Bovenang. You see? Because why? I thirst again in the body. Right? My throat gets dry. Okay, So this kind of water I need over and over again. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. You've got to believe that got her attention. I mean, that's what, again, even if she's thinking about it in the physical realm, and she probably still was, she knew there was something miraculous about that idea. She was thinking to herself, you, you mean there's a possibility here that I can have some water, so I'm never going to have to come to this well again, that it's super water. You know, we, we have all kinds of super water today in the supermarkets, right? The different style, I don't know, there's like a hundred. When I was a kid, we didn't even have water in bottles, you know. Now we have a hundred kinds of water in bottles. Flavored water, bubbling water, this water, super water, natural water. I don't know. What? Vitamin water, right, right. Um, And some of the claims they make are along the lines of Jesus, right? But she says, you know what? Wow, if I could only have that water, I wouldn't have to be dragging this this, uh, bucket around. I wouldn't have to walk the half mile to the well and so forth. You know, they they didn't have plumbing. You know, like we have it today, right? If she wanted water, she had to go over there and draw it out of the well. She says, boy, that'd be great if I never had to do that again. Again, still really thinking about the natural realm. But at least now, she's aware that there's something special about this man. I mean, he really either really has that water or he's nuts, right? One or the other. There's a lot of times when you have to come to that decision. You know, who is Jesus? If he is who he says he is, then my life will never be the same. Okay? If he's not who he says he is, I can't construct something that makes him into something that he's really not, which is what all the false religions do. They try to make him into something short of the Son of God and the promised Jewish Messiah. Okay? But if you take him at his word, you believe that he's God in the flesh. And now you have to be accountable, as it were. You have to, you have to listen to him. Once you understand that there's a God in heaven... And he's one God, and he's omniscient and omnipotent. And he's just and righteous, as well as loving. And you understand that I have a problem. I have a need that I will never satisfy on my own. I have a thirst. It was created by the fact that I'm fallen. I'm without the most important thing. And, I, and if I, once I understand that there's one God, and he's omniscient, and omnipotent, and he's righteous, he's the one with whom I have to do, and, ha- and, ha- and it's his righteousness that has to be satisfied, and that's the thirst that I have that I will never satisfy. And now you're ready to listen to Jesus when he tells you that I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. On the other hand, God so loved you that he gave me his one and only Son, So that ever who simply believes in me will never perish. Will have that water, that living water. Will have eternal life. Now, believing, in in this case, is drinking. I'm going to show this later. But drinking means believing. One time, right? You believe. You drink the water. Not the Kool-Aid, but the water. You drink the water of the truth of who Jesus is. You drink it up. And basically that water is the Holy Spirit now, okay, who comes to indwell your heart, your innermost being, the moment you believe. And he is there as a pledge that you will have eternal life. That is the ultimate outpouring of the water, the water of life. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water in the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
shall never thirst. Again, he gives us the message of eternal life. He, he makes it possible for someone to become a child of God. There's this water, the Holy Spirit. What, what's the only thing you have to do to never thirst again? Drink it, right? It's that simple. What a, what a great analogy to believe, what believing is, right? Again, there's no merit. If you're thirsty and somebody hands you a cup of water and you drink it, do you say to yourself, man, I must be pleasing to God now. I was dying of thirst and I drank some water. Of course not, right? All the merit is in the one who gave you the water when you were dying of thirst, right? That's God. All he asks you to do is drink it. Believe the truth about the gospel of who his son is. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water, notice, that I will give him will become in him, what? A well of water. The well is no longer in the ground. Where is it? In the man who believes in Christ. It will become in him a well of water. In other words, this water will be pouring out from his innermost being. It will be a well far beyond anything that you can imagine with Jacob's well. And it will spring up all the way to eternal life. That's the living water that Jesus is talking about. That living water that springs up to eternal life. Now it begins to dawn on her that this is definitely not an ordinary man. Okay, this is where we'll pick things up next Sunday. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your entire word. We thank you that every part of it makes sense when we understand that we just piece it together according to the principles of how to understand your scriptures. We thank you that you've given us everything that we can draw from now. The Old Testament, the prophets, the five books of the Torah, the Psalms, everything that we have to draw on now. All of which points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the Gospels, which, which, which depicts his life and his conversations, his life-giving conversations. His, his putting people on notice that there is a righteous God. And that they, we cannot satisfy our thirst for righteousness. And therefore we need to believe in him. The, 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 Acts, the book of Acts that tells us how the church became into being. And how, how there was a, was, a, was a fellowship in Jerusalem. But then it moved out. And then with the apostle Paul was, was brought the new message uh, of the gospel of grace to the Gentile world. And we thank you for the final books of the, of the New Testament, especially all of them, leading up to the book of Revelation that tells us about the final things that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and all the promises that were made to the Jews and how they were all finally fulfilled by the appearance of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of that. And we also, Father, thank you for the invitation that goes out to every man to drink of the water of life. And we just... Take a moment here now, Father, so that whoever may be listening to this, who is still like the Samaritan woman, doesn't know about your son, doesn't understand that, that they need eternal life, that you are a righteous and just God, and that they really do remain under your wrath before they believe in your son, and that your desire is that nobody should perish. You love this so much that you gave us Jesus his perfect sacrifice on the cross so that no one would perish, but everyone would have eternal life. Believe, believe, believe. We would just ask this morning, Father, that you would have the Holy Spirit convict whoever needs convicting about sin. We're all sinners. And righteousness, a standard we cannot possibly achieve on our own. And judgment, which is what awaits anybody who doesn't believe in Christ. And And then, Father, with that as a backdrop, help us to articulate clearly the simplicity of the gospel that Jesus is your son that we're sinners that he died on the cross for all our sins and was buried and that you raised him from the dead a perfect demonstration of this new life this eternal life that comes out of the ground and springs up forever and that whoever simply believes will never perish but has eternal life Father, today we also want to pray for all the needs of the saints. They've never been greater, both here and around the world. Pray for everybody who's asked us for prayer this morning, Father. Especially this morning, Father, we want to pray for the nations of Israel and and India and the great 
problems that they're facing right now. And we, uh, we especially want to pray, Father, for the unbelievers, that you may open their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Now, we've been in the Old Testament a bit today. We've been showing how things in the Old Testament are a perfect setup to things in the New. And on Thursday evenings, we are studying the, the greatest prophet in terms of revealing Christ in the Old Testament, and that's Isaiah. Isaiah. And he takes us through these miraculous things that the Lord is going to do in his time and in the time of when the, when the, when the is, Israelites are going to be in exile and they come back, and, but ultimately pointing forward to the return of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. All of that is in the book of Isaiah. With that said, we simply invite you to our Bible study on Thursdays. It's on Skype at 6.30 p.m. We hope you all can join us. At the end of that time, we pray together whatever needs that have been brought to our attention. And we ask you to be a participant in that as well. Again, Skype, 6.30 on Thursday. You can, uh, this every week on the website, on the front page of lbible.org, you will see a, 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 an announcement of the Bible study. It'll be there that day. And you can click on it, and it shows you exactly what you need to do, which isn't that much, right, in order to join us. All right. All right, let's close again in prayer. Father, thank you once again for your grace. We ask now, Father, that as we leave, that we may be able to be springs of life to others who need to know that they are thirsty and need to know that you've perfectly provided for them in your Son. We ask it now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And that is the end of service today. You're dismissed now. We hope that you have a fantastic afternoon and week and that uh, what we've learned today might be something that will come into your heart and build you up.